What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today's title is 15 Things I Wish People Weren't So Confused About. Now, some of these topics are going to be slightly large topics that you think maybe should be their own podcast, or actually some of them are their own podcast, like reverse dieting or intermittent fasting. But these are parts of those topics that really don't need to be so confusing and that I get a lot of questions about week to week, which, by the way, is fine. I know not everybody, you know, listens to every single one of my Q&A, so I don't mind answering the same question week to week. But some of this stuff just doesn't need to be so confusing. And I feel like there are people out there that are like in this analysis paralysis where they just are so confused about a certain topic that they end up not acting and it kills me. And so we're going to go over 15 things that I think, you know, people don't need to be so confused about. So number one, reverse dieting. Reverse dieting is just the process of going from your deficit calories to your maintenance calories. It's not a metabolic hack. Your metabolism can adapt to more food as much as it is genetically capable of doing at a certain body weight, composition, and activity level. This idea that you're going to hack your metabolism by going up slowly and you can just magically do that forever, it's not true. Like you going from your deficit calories up to maintenance calories, you can do that. But this idea that you're just going to keep adding calories slowly in five, five, calorie, five carbohydrates a week or something like that and your body meta, uh, metabolically adapts, listen, that happens totally because everybody's body everybody's metabolism can respond to more food, but only to a certain amount. You're not hacking your metabolism. You're just eating as much as you could have always eaten. And that's it. And you're, you know, you might be reverse dieting slowly in an attempt to find out where that is. And that's fine, but you're not hacking anything. You're just eventually going to be eating what you could have always been eating. Now with this reverse dieting process, and I put that in quotes because I feel like it's this like thing that has become so complex. It's not complex. You don't need to go insanely slow. Right? You don't need to go from your peak low deficit calories up by 50 calories a week or every two weeks or every month or some crazy shit that people are talking about. Like You can go up fast. Like You can go up right away. You can jump right to your new expected maintenance. Now, you can't jump right back to your old, uh, your old maintenance because you've lost weight and you are not the same body weight composition. right? And so you don't have the same maintenance and your maintenance will be lower. And that's why we say your new estimated maintenance. Now, I understand people don't want to overshoot maintenance. So they're like, oh, how do I know that that's my maintenance? Okay, maybe you don't. So instead, what you might want to do is do a significant chunk of calories out of the gate right away. So if you're at 1,500, you think your maintenance is 2,000, maybe you jump right to 18 or 19. That big chunk is going to make you feel much better very soon. And then if you want to go slower from there as you approach your estimated maintenance, you can. But you are not hacking your metabolism. This idea that you just go up a little bit of calories over a long period of time and you magically boost your metabolism, that's not a thing. You are only going to get as far as your genetic capacity to upregulate metabolism will let you at a certain body weight, composition, and activity level. You're always gonna you're only gonna get as far as you could always have gotten. You're not going to hack something. Okay, next. Intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting is literally just an adherence tool. You, again, are not hacking your metabolism. You can't eat more calories because you're eating them over eight hours instead of 12 hours. Like, it is literally just an adherence tool. If shrinking your feeding window helps you adhere to your calories and enjoy your life better, then do it. There is nothing else special about it. And some other, you know, just context about intermittent fasting, it's probably fine for muscle growth in everybody except for people who are trying to maybe squeeze out every last inch of muscle growth, maybe bodybuilders, et cetera. Um, you know, having less protein feedings throughout the day is probably over the long haul, not as good as having more protein feedings throughout the day. But we've seen some studies where, 
you know, uh, and two two meals over eight hours versus like four meals over 12 hours have done, you know, relatively similar in terms of muscle growth to the point where we can probably say, man, for the average person out there trying to get, you know, kind of jacked, if you want to intermittent fast, you can still build muscle. Just make sure you're getting, you know, two to three meals in, yeah, I mean, three probably better than two over the course of your feeding window, even if it's shorter. And then from a, you know, this like idea of like intermittent fasting for longevity, like, please stop. Like, you think you're getting longevity benefits? You think you're going to live longer by skipping breakfast? I'm not saying you're going to live shorter. I'm saying the idea that you're going to literally live longer, that you have longevity benefits from fucking skipping breakfast. Get the fuck out of here. You're kidding? Like, there's so, the idea of how long you're going to live on this earth is not going to come down in any meaningful way to whether or not you ate breakfast. Like, it's not in the top 100 things that I could think of, of like what's going to help you live longer. So just please stop with the longevity benefits. And then last on intermittent fasting, it, it might not be best for women. Uh, women respond differently to this kind of stress on the body. And so maybe if you're going to do a fast as a woman, if you're going to intermittent fast on a daily basis, maybe do a little bit shorter. I think the you know typical like 16-8 for, for people for intermittent fasting, probably a little bit too long for women. Maybe cap it out in that like 12 to 14 hour range. Cool. Next one is good and bad foods. So unnecessarily confusing and a little bit of a rant, but like good, like bad, like what the hell are you talking about? Like using good and bad to describe food is so intellectually lazy. It, it shows that you're either lazy or you have absolutely no clue what you're talking about. Like good and bad, that's the best sort of qualifier you can come up with. Like, yes, foods are different. Foods are more or less satiating. They're more or less nutritious. They have a different macronutrient breakdown, right? Some have a better protein to calorie ratio. Some are higher or low in fiber. Foods have different level of volume. Some foods are higher volume. Some foods are lower volume. But man, good or bad, the hell are you talking about? It's so ridiculously lazy. Like, you, it's like the, it's like clean eating. It's just like has no objective definition. It is. It needs to add. It needs some added context. Like for somebody trying to gain weight who's like having trouble being in a surplus, which is a question I get every week on Q&As, an Uncrustable might be freaking awesome. Like it might be perfect because it's not that satiating. It's a little higher in calorie. It's more calorie dense. It's lower volume, right? Those are all the opposite of what you would want if you're in a fat loss phase where you want maybe higher volume, higher satiety foods. And so this good or bad, like for what? Like it's so, it's either intellectually lazy where you're not actually thinking or you are thinking and you just don't know what the hell you're talking about. The only thing I might put in this like bad category is trans fats. Like we don't want to be guzzling down a bunch of trans fats. I don't think there could be a, a context in which I could argue trans fats are good. Um, and so if we want to label something bad, go ahead. Trans fats are bad. Number four, sugar slash carbs. Uh, you know, most of this is going to be about sugar, but kind of goes very similar for, for carbs here. So sugar, sugar, Oof. sugar is not any more fattening than other carb sources. If you replace 100 calories uh, or 100 grams, let's say, of carbohydrates from sugar with 100 grams of calories from potato, but everything else stays the same, everything is the same. You're not any healthier or less healthy. Like, you don't lose more fat or gain more fat or build more muscle. Like, literally nothing. Now, before we get into that, like, like, sugar is not independently making you healthy or un unhealthy, right? It's not this single thing. Like, you guys need to think of health as this very, very multifactorial thing. Like there's so many inputs for health. Your sugar intake indirectly can affect that. And we'll talk about that in a second, but directly is not making you healthy or unhealthy. Now, sugar is low in nutrients, right? It doesn't have a lot of uh, vitamins and minerals. It's low in fiber. It's low in satiety. And it makes things taste better. And when you factor all of that in, 
when you add sugar to things, it leads to a higher likelihood of overconsumption. That's all true, totally. But that overconsumption of calories is why sugar can indirectly be suboptimal for health because of the, you know, just what, because having excess body fat over the long term is suboptimal for health. And so uh, this sugar's, sugar's worst quality is that it's not satiating. Like that's it. It's not satiating and it's delicious. And so you combine something that doesn't fill you up and that you could eat a lot of and like, bam. Like, and on that note, like if I put sugar cubes out at a buffet, nobody's eating them. And so this idea that it's just sugar is just ludicrous. Like think about the things that are quote unquote hyper palatable. It's usually some combination of sugar, salt, and fat. Think of like a, like a croissant. Hold on. Alexa going off in the background, not feeling it. We're back. Um, like, think about like a croissant or like a fucking ice cream or something. Like, these are not just high in sugar. These are high in fat and salt. And yeah, there's some carbohydrates, simple carbohydrate in there for sure. But like, nobody's eating sugar cubes at a buffet. Um, yeah. So having sugar in your diet is not a bad thing. People telling you to avoid fruit because sugar are literally morons. Like, it's the totality of your diet and the rest of your habits that will make you more or less healthy over the long term. Now, having a diet that is high in sugar is probably also a, a diet that's lower in nutrients and lower in overall satiety, which, you know, uh, over the long term across populations is probably going to lead to an, a, a higher likelihood of overconsumption of calories. Like sugar is not independently making you healthy or more, it's more fattening than other carbs. It's not. It's low in nutrients, low in fiber, low in satiety, makes things taste better. And, you know, maybe leads to a higher likelihood of overconsumption because things are really yummy and not satiating. Next is scale fluctuations. Even you, it, it, listen to me very clearly. Even if you adhere 100% to your plan, right? You hit your calories, your protein, your steps every single day perfectly. Your, the scale is going to fluctuate. You're going to have days where you gain weight, period, full stop, even if you are 100% adherent. And so this idea that it's not going to fluctuate, you got to get that out of your head right now because it's going to throw you just for a mental loop you know, even if you're 100% adherent, there are going to be days where you literally gain weight. And that's because we are not talking about weight loss. We're talking about fat loss. Weight loss is very nonlinear because of water fluctuations in the body and things like uh, just like stomach content. So you have things like salt. If you eat more salt than you normally do, not high salt, but more salt than you normally eat. If you eat more carbs than you normally eat, you can retain water. Like, it's just the way it is. Like, you can weigh more the next day if you had a higher, salt, a higher salt meal or a higher carb meal. It doesn't mean you lost, like, you didn't lose fat, right? Maybe you just need to take a poop. Maybe you had a hard workout and there's some inflammation, right? Maybe there's uh, something going on with the menstrual cycle. You're at a period in your cycle where you retain more water. Maybe you have higher cortisol from some stress. Like, yeah, you can use these this knowledge to kind of rationalize a scale fluctuation where, you know, if, if you went out to hibachi the night before and you weigh more today, like, yeah, you're okay, you get it. You're like more carbs, more salt. And that rationalization, the understanding of these things can definitely help. But sometimes trying to over-rationalize it, it's going to kind of mess you up because there are so many inputs that sometimes you can't rationalize it. And it's going to be frustrating when you try to rationalize it and you can't. And so start taking average weigh-ins across the week and comparing those averages like month to month. And stop worrying about the day-to-day fluctuations. Like the best example is like, let's say you buy Google stock. Even the most neurotic stock addict, you know, isn't thinking about selling Google stock on the day-to-day. Like you might check your Google stock day-to-day just like you check your weigh-in, but you don't judge whether or not how things are going on the day-to-day. You zoom out. You look week to week. You look month to month, quarter to quarter. And so this idea that you're going to like 
decide whether or not this quote unquote, this is working or should I quit based on what happened today on the scale is ludicrous. Start treating your weigh-ins like your Google stock. Get the data day to day if you want, right? Weigh in daily, but don't judge is this working or not day to day. Like log it as data, look at the averages week to week, look at the trend month to month and then decide. Number six, creatine makes me bloated. Oh, this one I talk about a lot. Listen, I'm going to go through it quick. Creatine is an osmolite, which means it pulls water wherever it goes. Guess where you want creatine to go? You want it to go into the muscle, which means it will bring water into the muscle. It's called intracellular water, water in the cell. It's not subcutaneous water. You're not going to get bloated or watery. Like it's literally going to bring water into the muscle and to make your muscle look fuller and more defined. Like it, if anything, is going to make you look better. And this idea that you're going to get like watery or bloated, like if you are really worried about that, one, it shows you don't understand creatine because that's not what's going to happen. You know, the only time you might get bloated or watery is if you do a really heavy loading, like a loading phase, which again, you could do and you might have some bloat. And obviously, you know, I probably wouldn't recommend that just because it doesn't have any benefit outside of just maybe speeding up the benefits. You're taking creatine like probably for the rest of your life. And so this idea that you need to speed it up by like 20 days, in the context of taking it for the rest of your life, just never really made much sense to me. Um, and so, yeah, anything else on the creatine situation? Listen, if you have a, a company like, what's her fucking face? Um, oh my God, fit, blonde fitness influencer, like one of the OG uh, claims that she, I forgot what she, whatever. I'm not gonna, if I think of her name, I'll, I'll, I'll spout it out. Some of you guys are screaming at it. Claims that, uh, you know, she, ha- she sells a creatine that does not cause water retention. Well, then it does not work because the creatine needs to go into the muscle. And if it goes into the muscle, it will bring water. And so if you are trying to buy creatine that does not cause water retention, you're trying to buy creatine that does not work. And on that note, if you are worried, if you're like, hey man, I'm not gonna take creatine. I don't need that water retention. Like, okay, you are way too concerned with the number on the scale because the benefits of creatine are awesome. They're great. Helps with power and performance, probably cognitive benefits, muscle growth over time. Uh, muscle retention. It's great for the elderly. It's it's great for everybody, pretty much. You know, obviously, talk to your doctor. Um, if you are not taking it because you're like, I don't want to see a pound up on the scale, that pound is literally just water retention in the muscle that's probably going to make you look better and make you stronger and give you cognitive benefits. Like, ugh, just blows my mind. Someone's like, no, I don't want to see one number up on the scale. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't actually make you look worse. It's not adding fat to your body. It's making you look better and stronger and cognitive benefit and all this good stuff. Moving on, cardio for fat loss. Listen, for fat loss, you need a calorie deficit, right? Which means over time, you need to burn more calories than you take in. Cardio burns calories. So cardio can absolutely help. And when we say cardio, maybe we just mean movement, moving more, right? Whether you're on a treadmill or you're going for a walk, it's still cardio. And so, yeah, cardio for fat loss. Cardio can help, absolutely, because it does help one of the parts of the equation to, that creates calorie deficit, right? It helps the calories out part. But it's way easier to out-eat your calories burned than it is for you to outwork your calories eaten, right? And so your main focus should be creating your deficit with your nutrition. Now, cardio slash movement is definitely helpful, but it shouldn't be the main driver of your deficit because it is way harder to do that from an effort standpoint, from a time standpoint, and way easier to, you know, how, how hard is it to burn 400 calories? It take you quite a while to do that. How hard is it to eat 400 calories in literally one second? You can shove like one half of a bagel in your face, you know, and that's not 400 calories, but okay, just you you get it. Cool. 
Body re- number eight, body recomposition. Not complicated. You eat at maintenance. You eat adequate protein and you train for muscle growth. Like you should always be training. Uh, you build some muscle and you lose some fat, but both of those happen very slowly. And so while you're doing both of those, you are changing the composition, what your body is made up of. You are having a little bit less fat and a little bit more muscle. Thus, it's called recomposition. Now, both of those things, building a muscle, losing fat at maintenance happen very slowly because the best thing for building muscle is a calorie surplus. And the best thing for losing fat is a calorie deficit. And you're doing neither of those things. And so you're getting less of both, but both simultaneously. And I would say you're, you're not getting an equal portion of both, right? I think it would be exponentially slower, not equivalent. Not, you're not getting 50% of each where you could rationalize, hey, oh, it's the same thing. Now, something wrong with doing recomposition. The, the benefits or the pros, I would say, is that you don't need to be in a deficit, which is great, right? You don't need to be in a deficit to change the composition of your body because being in deficit sucks. And so you can change, you know, the composition, what you look like without actually having to be hungry all the time, let's say, or, you know, whatever, make the lifestyle trade-offs that make being in a deficit not fun. You also don't have to change your wardrobe, right? You can change your body shape and and what your body looks like and, and some of that stuff without your without changing your body size very much. And so if you're worried about like, my clothes fitting 1% different or something. It's like, okay, but you know, you're not really going to be gaining or losing much weight. You're going to be staying very much a very similar body weight. And so this might be a good, uh, a good way to go for you. Now the cons are obvious. Both fat loss and muscle gain happen very, very slowly. And it becomes increasingly less practical the more trained you become. So the longer you train, the more necessary it will be for you to have a, a, a calorie surplus and be in an anabolic environment for you to build muscle. You can build less muscle at maintenance over time. So it's mostly possible, and when I say possible, I mean practical. Recomping is mostly practical for people who are new to training, people who are regaining muscle they once had, maybe coming off a layoff or an injury, people who are on steroids, or people who are finally putting training and nutrition on an intelligent track. And so if you've if you've been kind of like, you do your orange theory, you do your boot camp, you've been doing some of this like pseudo weightlifting hit style circuit stuff, and you've never really counted your calories or your protein or anything like that, and all of a sudden... You know, you're like, well, I'm not a noob. I've been training for a long time. It's like, mm, you know, you hop on a well-designed hypertrophy tra- style program and you start counting your calories and protein for the first time and you hitting the upper end of maintenance and you're eating high protein and you're finally getting a better hypertrophy stimulus. Like you can recomp, definitely. And I see it all the time. My clients who come to me are like, yeah, I've, you know, I've, I, I've never really done more, you know, properly structured hypertrophy training. Yeah, full stop. I don't care if you've been training for a decade, you can still recomp practically. Number nine, circuits for muscle gain. So circuit training for muscle gain. Well, flat out circuits are not the best for muscle gain. Like just remember whatever is the limiting factor is the thing that's being trained. I mean, you're running around doing circuits with cardio intervals and, you know, 800 exercises and never resting. Like it's more of a cardiovascular system workout than it is training the individual muscle tissue. Like for best muscle gain, slow down, rest longer, make your sets limited by the target muscle that you're trying to grow and stop trying to do a zillion things at once. Now you can do circuit training. It doesn't, doesn't, I'm not against any style of training. I'm just saying circuits and doing a bunch, like a million sets in a row without resting is not what is optimal for muscle gain. Now we can talk about doing supersets, which I think can be totally fine, but we're just talking about like two sets back to back. Not talking about three sets and then a fucking, you row 100 meters and then you air dine 10 calories and then you, you know, you do double unders until you, until you, you know, your calves fall off and then you go back to bench pressing and then you're doing this like, no, that's not what's optimal for muscle, for muscle growth. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a very famous coach out there who promotes his program called, what's it called? High intensity 
bodybuilding or something like a high intensity interval bodybuilding. That's what it's called. Ludicrous. It's literally an oxymoron. It is literally an oxymoron. It's like high intensity interval hypertrophy training. It's like not a thing. Slow down, rest longer, make your sets limited by the target muscle. Stop trying to do a zillion things at once. Number 10, soreness. Now, two true statements. Number one, you don't need to be sore to have made adaptations. Even if you're not sore the next day, does not mean that you didn't make gains. Second true statement. If you're never, ever, 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 ever the least bit sore, ever, ever, it's likely that you'd make better gains with more volume or intensity, depending on which you're currently lacking. So you don't need to be sore to make gains, but if over the course of your training block, training career, you're never, ever, ever, ever the least bit sore, it's likely you could make better gains with more work, whether that's from a volume perspective or an intensity perspective. Now, how do we kind of sum that up, like TLDR, like some soreness here and there. Like people say soreness is not a proxy for growth. It isn't. And it's also not like a dose correlate where, you know, more soreness is gives you more growth. It doesn't work that way. But no soreness does leave clues to that the fact that you might be able to make better gains with some soreness. So soreness, some soreness here and there is a good proxy for an adequate stimulus. More soreness is not an adequate proxy for more growth. It's an adequate stimulus uh, uh, proxy for more damage uh, and probably, man, again, not to get overly in-depth, but probably, you know, if you're getting super freaking sore, it's probably limiting your ability to, to practice adequate frequency to get enough volume because you're so sore on Monday that you can't train on Wednesday and so on. So if you're never, ever, ever, ever the least bit sore, you could probably do more and make better gains, but you don't need to be sore to make adaptations and being more sore doesn't mean you made more gains. Number 11, eating back calories burned. I have three issues with this. One, your calories that you're, you set to eat should already be set at a number that takes into account your average activity level. Like you should be factoring in your average activity level across the week when you set your calories. And so when you burn calories and you're like, oh, my Apple watch told me I burned amount of calories. Like you already factored that into the number you're supposed to be eating. And so that is, it should already be a non-issue. Issue number two is like, if you do this, and this is something that I don't think people talk about enough about an issue with eating back calories, is like, if you do this, if you start to, let's say you're on the treadmill and you get off and you're like, yeah, but 300 calories, you start to build an unhealthy relationship between your movement and your eating. You start to equate earning one from the other. It's like, okay, I ate a donut, it was 250 calories, and now I need to go to 250 calories on the treadmill because you're thinking of the calories as a currency that are trading in both directions. Thinking about it that way, is not good for your relationship with your exercise and your eating. You are not earning food and you're not burning off food. That's not how this works. And also when you start to think about the calories you burn, you start to put that above other stimuli and it starts to take you away from the training that might give you the results you're actually after. Like I have many clients who who have come to me and talk about, you know, they were at Orange Theory and they wore their heart rate monitor and this is how many calories they're burning. And it's like, the reason that these people are at Orange Theory or Spin Class or this is because they are seeking out the highest number of calories burned. And then if you ask this person, what do you want to get out of your training? You're like, well, I want some muscle, some muscle definition. I want to look fit and I want to lose weight. And it's like, we just went over the fact that, you know, trying to burn the most calories or trying to do cardio for fat loss is probably a misguided suboptimal approach. 
and you're missing out on the muscle building benefit side here. And so maybe you'd be better off with training that yielded the muscle definition growth side and a nutrition protocol that yielded a calorie deficit and then some supplemental cardio, which definitely helps instead of trying to burn the most amount of calories. Like if you start to sink your teeth into like, I'm trying to burn the most amount of calories. Oh my God, I got 700 today, 800 the next day, 805. I'm trying to beat my record. Like you are trending further away from training that might actually give you the physical results that you're actually after. Now you might say, I'm not actually after any sort of muscle definition or shape to my body at all. I literally want to disappear. Okay, that's a different story. You can go burn as many calories as you want. I still wouldn't count them and I still wouldn't eat them back. Cool. Next, diet soda versus regular soda. <laughs> the common claim is that like diet soda, the artificial sweeteners are going to trick your body into thinking that there's sugar in your body and so it's gonna spike insulin. L just really quick, like think about what insulin does. So insulin will, okay, so in insulin secreted by the pancreas is gonna lower your blood sugar. If you don't actually have carbohydrates that are gonna increase your blood sugar and then you your insulin spikes, you would your body would literally pull the blood sugar that you have, which is at a normal rate, and it would pull it down to, you know, you would die pretty much. And so it's impossible for this to be what's happening. You can, you are not drinking something with no calories that is causing an insulin spike. Because if you did, your blood sugar would go straight to the toilet. It is impossible. So diet soda will not spike your insulin. It has no calories and it's not bad for you. Regular soda has calories, is not satiating nor nutritious because it's only sugar, right? I'm not even mad about it being sugar. I'm mad that it, it has non-satiating, non-nutritious calories. The end. Like, okay, diet soda on one hand, no calories is, you know, whatever. It's not satiating because it has no calories, but that's fine. We're not looking at, we don't need to be eating things that have no calories and are satiating. If it has, if it's not satiating and has no calories, then fine. It's like fucking water. And it might actually be, it might actually be helpful. And we do see in the literature for most people, it's actually very helpful for fat loss because it is something that's like, I don't know, something like a treat that tastes good, that doesn't have calories and can kind of help you maintain a calorie deficit a little bit better. You have something with no calories versus something that has calories and is not satiating. The hell is that worse? It makes no sense to me. Anyone who says diet soda is as bad or worse than regular soda is literally a moron. Full stop. Number 13, strength training makes you bulky. We'll keep this one short. It's hard as fuck to build muscle. Like you won't, like this is not something that happens overnight. If you're somebody, listen to me, if you're somebody who is just beginning your weight training journey and you're like, I'm nervous about getting bulky, I promise you, you will have plenty of time to stop training before you get bulky. You're not just gonna fucking wake up one day and be like, holy crap, what are these huge muscles? They came out of nowhere. Like it takes years and years to build muscle. You can always stop before you think you get too bulky. Now, I'm, I'm almost being too nice there because you're not gonna get much bigger unless you're consistently eating in a surplus. And even then, nothing happens quickly. You won't wake up overnight with big jack muscles. Like, <laughs> you, you, you start lifting today. And I promise you, at some point, if you think you're getting too bulky, you can stop. You're not, it's not gonna be like, oh my God, I'm jacked out of my mind now. I should have stopped blank time ago because you could have. There's no way you're just gonna wake up one day and be jacked. If you worried about being bulky, stop when you feel like you're getting larger than you want to. But on that note, you're not gonna get much bigger unless you're consistently eating a surplus. And even then, nothing happens quickly. And I'll leave you with the fact that the people that you don't wanna look like, the people that you are calling bulky in your head, whatever it is, someone you saw in a magazine, a CrossFit chick, whatever, 
the people that you don't want to look like because they are, quote, too bulky. They eat way more than you and trade way harder than you, and you are never going to look like them unless you commit to trying to look like them. And even then, you probably won't look like them because they probably have sick genetics. And so I promise you, the people you want to look like lift way harder than you and eat way more than you and do it for way longer than you. The end. Number 14, how many, what time are we at? 28 minutes here? Yeah, we got time for two more. Number 14, calorie cycling for fat loss or calorie cycling in general. What is calorie cycling? Essentially, it's the idea that you can eat more on some days and less on others. And as long as you end the week in the same deficit, it won't matter for fat loss or maintenance. Essentially, you could eat, you know, 2,000 calories every day and that would get you to 14,000, right? Across the week. Or you could eat 1,000 calories, then 3,000 calories and 1,000 calories and 3,000 calories. And that would also average out to, you know, 14,000 calories across the week. Both of those will yield the same amount of fat loss or maintenance or whatever. Because what matters is your a total calorie or average calorie at the end of the week. Now I say it won't matter for fat loss or maintenance because I do think that it might matter a bit in a surplus. And, and in that regard, I think a consistent surplus. So being, let's say you're in a surplus for six months. The person who's in a small surplus every day for six months, 180 days, let's say, is probably going to see better gains than the person or that same person who's in an intermittent surplus where, you know, maybe three days they're in a huge surplus, but four days they're in a deficit. It's like, okay, I want to gain, but I want to have two huge cheat days where I have 5,000 calories and the rest of the days I'm going to be in a deficit. I don't think that's going to work as well for muscle growth as being in a consistent surplus, more static calories. Now, can you still have some fluctuation? Can you have some days at maintenance? Absolutely, totally. And are you going to still build muscle in the other scenario? Yeah, probably. Uh, well, I'd go as far as say, yeah, definitely. But I'd say you do better if you're in a surplus consistently. Of the 180 days you're in a surplus, I'd say the more days that you're in a surplus, the better. Cool. And last one is rest days. What should I do on my rest day, Jordan? Is this a rest day? Does this count as a rest day? Listen, if it's a rest day that is programmed by your coach as a rest day, don't do anything hard enough to cause damage or adaptations. No heart rate pounding, no muscles burning, nothing close to failure, nothing fatiguing. Don't do anything hard enough to cause damage or adaptations because when it's time to cause damage or adaptations, you do that during your workouts. Save your rest days for not things that are not hard enough to cause damage or adaptation. Like a light 5K, people think, I'm going to do a light 5K on my rest day. Get the fuck out of here. A light 5K is not a rest day unless you're like a, a marathon runner, period. Like, and, and, and on that note, listen, if you're afraid to take a rest day or you don't want to take a rest day or you're fucking hashtag no pain, no game or hashtag no days off, team no days off, whatever, like that's not something you wear on your sleeve. Like, and I'm not trying to shame anyone because I, I have so many clients that have come to me and we are working through this. It's, it's totally normal. Yeah, normal is a weird way of saying it. I think it's kind of fucked up that we're so afraid to take rest days, but it is the way it is right now where, you know, we're way more comfortable pushing ourselves than we are letting ourselves have a break. Now, I'm not trying to shame anybody, but, you know, 90-year-old you is laughing at you. 90-year-old you might even be embarrassed by you because it shows that you really don't have a clue how any of this works. And that's okay, by the way, for you not to have any clue how this works, you know, how creating adaptations work and the, and the physiology behind it. It's okay that you have no clue. But being afraid to take a rest day shows, proves that one, you're not actually, you don't, you have, you don't have any clue how this works because one, you'd make better gains with rest days than without, without them. And so you must not actually know that. And you must not actually be after the best gains possible. If you want to make the best gains possible, you don't train seven days a week. And if you're training seven days a week, you are doing something knowingly suboptimal. 
Like you, if you're afraid of taking a rest day because you think you're going to lose something, you're going to gain fat, you're going to lose muscle or you're going to lose strength. Like again, it shows you don't have any clue how this works. Like rest days are, op, are, are part of an optimal program. And so, you know, even if you took a week off, you wouldn't lose muscle or strength or arbitrarily gain fat, especially if you're hypertrophy training, right? Your fat loss and fat gain has nothing to do with your hypertrophy training or very minimal. And so this idea of like hashtag team no days off, like this is stupid. Like you're literally knowingly making less gains because you're afraid of something that you actually, if you were to confront it logically, you know it makes no sense. Like you know that you, it just shows that you don't actually know what's best for making gains. So if you're somebody out there who's like, I'm terrified of taking a rest day. Well, one, you're making less gains than if you were making uh, than if you were taking rest day. And two, it shows that you really have no idea what you're talking about. And if you don't, by the way, which is fine, it's it is not your job to know the answer to all these questions. You don't need to know all the physiological processes. You are a freaking normal person, good at other stuff. Hire somebody to explain it to you. Hire a coach. Talk about it. Work through it because I know there's an emotional component, but sometimes you can fight that emotion with logic. And sometimes the emotional part of you that's afraid to take a break, if confronted with the logical side of you that knows taking a break is what's best for growth and probably what's best for your quality of life long-term, shit, it'd be hard to turn that down. All right, guys, thank you for everybody who submitted one of these. Super fun episode. Gonna do a couple more solo episodes over the next couple months. Uh, Really enjoyed this one. Thanks for listening, guys. See you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.